This morning we're in a passage that has always been used to kind of keep us on the right path. It's one of these really Christian Bible verses, right? If you know what I mean, it's one of those verses that's always used in kids' church. It's always used at kids' camps and all the retreats. And we have like these hand motions to give it some emphasis and make it the memory verse of the week. It's, it's one of those verses. And for the adults, we use this passage to remind believers, right, how our minds should be filled with all of the good things of the world and not the bad. That we shouldn't be so negative that Christ's mind was this and this only, that if there were a picture, maybe even a snapshot of the inside of your mind, kind of portraying what's going on, the condition of what your regular thoughts look like or should look like, it would look like this. It would be spiritual rainbows and unicorns. It would be spiritual uh, blue skies and bright sun with flowers and a fantastic clean scenery. You'd have all of your best friends and family there with you. And maybe it would be a glimpse of even what heaven is supposed to be like. And we call it glory. And here's that passage. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I mean, what a super Christian Bible verse to read. But I really do believe that this passage from the Bible has far too often been used to just set our minds on the good things. And while I believe that has its place and there's a proper usage for that, I don't necessarily believe that that's Paul's intention here. And if we're going to properly apply it to our lives, if we're going to properly think about such things as he says, then we need to stop and we need to properly assess what he's really getting at. And I can assure you that we're going to land at a deeper meaning here, okay? So as we delve into this verse, I'm asking for a few things. I'm asking for your participation with open hearts, with open minds, and a willingness to maybe be wrong about what you know about the Bible, maybe be wrong about what you know about Jesus Christ and the Christian walk. And I promise that as we approach God with this humble position, I promise that as we approach Jesus with a humble attitude, and the willingness to be wrong, your hearts will acknowledge the truth. And, and you'll acknowledge the truth not only about God and what he has spoken, but about your life. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your love, your mercy, and your grace. We thank you for a new day. We thank you for life. And we thank you that we can live it to the fullest and spreading your gospel and good news to the rest of the world. I thank you for Root River Church, a place I call home. I thank you for these awesome people who are being a light in each other's lives and in mine by coming here this morning. I pray that as we get into this passage that we would be open to hearing what you have to say in our unique ways, God, and that we would um, put it to action. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, leading up to this, Paul's letter has called his church to be unified in their minds, to love one another uh, with pure and selfless hearts. He's talked about Jesus as an example. He's given the Philippian church examples in their own group, and he's gone into detail about even his own life as a good example. That's what Paul has done so far in this letter. He's also cautioned us to be humble and careful with our speech to do every single thing without grumbling. He's spoken highly of his awful circumstances because he has seen what amazing and powerful things have come out of it, mainly because it has advanced the gospel and it has brought people to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. 
in turn, he's called us to also live worthy of spreading that good news and that to do so, we must do all of the things he listed in that letter. And in this fourth chapter, the tone and the message is no different. What he has done is transition to just addressing the condition of our minds in all of it. He wants to address our minds in how we're living. If you remember my last message on anxiety, we learned that in the two verses before this, Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but instead pray to God. And after all of those charges, we get this from Paul. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. You see, this verse isn't about making sure our minds are thinking the good things at all. It's not about making sure we stay positive. It's about putting things to practice for the advancement of the gospel. So church, you have to ask questions when you come across these kinds of things in scripture. It's not enough to just accept the shallow versions of passages. It's not enough to just say whatever is pure, whatever is true, whatever is lovely, and recite it like we know something, right? It's not enough to just accept those things. Right now, I need the toddler in you to come out, and you have to start asking the infamous toddler question, which is, why? 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 You need to be asking why at every point that we come in contact with Scripture because there's always deeper meaning. So when Paul says, put this into practice, I say, why, Paul? Why must I put it into practice? Why do I need to think about such things? Why does it seem repetitive? Why is he saying the same things over and over again? Why is it so important to him to get that message across? Oh, is it so I can be in right relationship with God? Well, yeah, it means that, but it can't only mean that. Why is it so important that my thoughts, my words, and actions need to be put on display? Why must I do it? And when you've asked why enough, you're going to see the greater truth. You're going to see why it's important and how it's relevant to you now. And if you haven't caught on, I'll be really clear about what this verse is talking about. And it's already on the screen. It's about the importance of your Christian witness. It's about how you live, what you say, the attitudes you hold, the company you keep, what you do. It's all on display for the world to see. So Paul isn't trying to fluff up your minds with positivity. This whole letter to the Philippians is about finally accepting the severity of his charge to live worthy of the gospel. Because why? Because how you live, what you say, the attitudes you hold, the company you keep, what you do either leads to people seeing Jesus Christ in you, or it leads to people seeing hypocrisy and arrogance and ugliness. And if they can believe that there's even maybe a God in you, it's obviously a God with no transformational power. So they walk away not having experienced an extravagant love that Jesus Christ has to offer a radical acceptance in his embrace, or any remnant of Jesus Christ's love, mercy, and grace. And so as we get into this passage, let me prove it to you. Let this be what that's about. As we define each of these whatever is blank words and phrases mean, allow yourselves to see where you don't align. And in the places you think it aligns, allow yourself to be wrong and start from a clean slate. So let's look at what each of these means. The first phrase is whatever is true. Now this word true or truth is loaded. When we see the word true or truth, if we have any experience in God's word, we know that it can be used, explained, and characterized in so many ways. 
for starters, it's a fact, right? When we see the word true or truth, we usually go true or false. We go down that lane. It's a fact. But in the Psalms, it's a little different. In the Psalms, it's a fundamental characteristic of God. The wicked don't speak it, but the blameless speak it from the heart. The truth leads a man. In, in Proverbs, it's a virtue that men of God should put into practice. It's a proceed from one's mouth, even a commodity one should purchase along with wisdom, instruction, and understanding. Jeremiah says, truth is so important, yet absent from Judah. So he says that if they could find just one man in Jerusalem who does justice and speaks the truth of God, God would pardon the entire city. In the Gospels, truth is a significant term that referred to Jesus and his ministry. And as we all know, Jesus refers to himself as the truth. And that upon his departure, the ministry of the truth will continue by the way of the Holy Spirit, both in the church and in the world. First John, to live according to the truth, is to have fellowship with God and not walk in darkness. And that if you claim sinlessness, you're void of the truth. In his second letter, the truth abides with us forever, and it's something that we can follow. But for Paul, in his letters, here's how he describes it. In Ephesians, truth is something we can speak to each other in love. In Second Thessalonians, he equates truth with salvation. Second Timothy he tells Timothy the Holy Spirit has entrusted him to guard it. And as Paul has said in Romans, the truth, the truth is a message of God that all of humanity has repressed in exchange for a lie. Now, I was careful to diversify my list for you about truth this morning, but I can assure you that it's certainly not comprehensive. There are a hundred plus verses about truth, but you should notice if you haven't already that truth means a whole lot of things. And so it's not just one thing. It's a really wide topic. And we have to ask why, if whatever is true, it should be definable, but it seems endless. Whatever is true. Let's move on to the next one. Whatever is noble. This means dignified, above reproach, maybe inspiring respect from others. In the Old Testament, it means something is heavy or weighty. And I have to be honest, it's probably not the heavy or weighty that's up here. It's not, it's not that. It's something different. It's, it's a heavier weighty that grants a person a due respect or a position of respect in their life. It's an internal attitude of respect and courtesy. Isaiah says it like this, that if it isn't, that if nobility isn't accompanied by appropriate action, it's just lip service. In John 5, God bestows honor on his son, Jesus Christ. And as Scott shared last Sunday, it's something that we should show to positions of authority in our community and in our homes. And whatever is noble, sadly, it's something that can be lost. We use this word honorable or noble in obedience to scripture when we are selecting leadership even. Selecting deacons in our church in 1 Timothy, it says deacons likewise must be men of dignity. No, not double-tongued or addicted to too much wine or fond of sordid gain. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. But look how this word begins to take shape through the New Testament. This is where I begin to see some pattern, this new pattern in all these whatever is blank words that Paul is using. Paul, in telling the Thessalonian church to live the way he's taught them, says this, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Respect of outsiders. 
Titus 2.7, and everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity and seriousness. In First Peter, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. In Second Corinthians, now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may have seemed to have failed. Whatever is noble seems a little bit more than just to do something, but it's for a purpose, he says, so that you can gain respect from the outsiders. It's not just about living the right life. It's living the right life because it leads to something bigger. It leads to people putting you in that place of honor in their life. And some of you have that already right now, and some of you don't, and that's okay. We have to work towards what Paul is saying. We have to let people see us as noble. Your Christian witness should inspire appropriate respect among other people. Next one, whatever is right. It's exactly what we would guess it to be. This is righteousness. This is the justice of God. It has to do with both the dealings of man to man and man to God. And when the word is translated from Greek to English, it sets the stage for two separate usages. Just, justify, justice, Right, righteousness, righteous. In the Gospels, whatever is right, it's Christ's mission to fulfill God's righteousness. Righteousness is a moral rightness, which is detailed in the Sermon on the Mount. And on the last day, the righteous will have done what Jesus Christ called them to do, and they will be called just. So just is another word for right that is used. And as for Paul, he uses righteousness more than a 100 times in his letters. 100 times. He uses it not only as a virtue of true believers, right? It's a virtue for sure. It's a gift from God, but but he believes that is first and foremost rooted in the covenant God created with his people and that it's completed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that right there, it's how he can be seen as faithful because we're depending on God being righteous because he said that we can be reconciled through his son, Jesus Christ. And if he's not righteous, that means it's a lie and I can end up in hell because he wants me to. And that's not the case. He created this covenant so that he'd have to obey it and that we could have faith in that covenant. Talk about something essential to our walk with God. That's the basis of our faith is believing that God is who he says he is. Paul says, whatever is right, whatever is that, be thinking about such things, do them. Next one is whatever is pure. This is God's holiness. This is his opposition to filthiness and foolish talking. It's innocence. It's cleanliness. If you hear those words and you don't immediately go to a place maybe of failure in your life, man, that's really tough for you. Because as soon as I hear holiness, I I see where I'm not. As soon as I hear innocence, I know where I'm not. When I hear cleanliness, I know where I'm not. We have to get to a place where we know where we're not at. In Exodus, whatever is pure, purity, it's the very thing that portrays someone as righteous in measurement against the law. It's purity. In the New Testament, we see a bit of a transition, though. It's not like it says in Exodus comparing it to the law, but it becomes a virtue and a moral purity towards others, how we treat other people. It's associated with understanding, patience, and kindness. And in James, it says this, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And as for Paul, he tells Timothy that it's with purity that he'll set examples for other believers. Again, if you haven't caught on, we're seeing that each of these virtues, each of these words that Paul is using doesn't ever equate to just one thing or one meaning. They seem to be all-encompassing. 
We have to take note of that and ask why. So we move on from whatever is pure to whatever is lovely. This is exactly what you'd guess it to be. This is lovable. This is lovable. The basic traits that cultivate love and friendship. It's agreeableness. And I love how it says in 2 Samuel 1.23 about Saul and Jonathan. In life they were loved and admired. And in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. It's got to be tough to describe something as deep as love in few words. But here it's used as worthy of love, not just by people who are present. So between Saul and Jonathan, but others recognize that in Saul and Jonathan. I want to clarify that even though it might be fitting to reference what scripture teaches about loving others as described in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, the love is patient, love is kind, that verse, it might be fitting to use that. But the word that's used here is prosphiles, and it comes from the word phileo, which is right, our brotherly love. I feel like it was probably more fitting to use the 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love, God's love, right? But when it said brotherly love, it like really shot me in the heart because it means something different. And although God's love is vast and big and amazing, like there's a reason why we use a different word for brotherly love. And why it meant a lot to me is because I got a really good big brother. So when I read him say the prosphiles word, it's brotherly love, I'm supposed to be seen that way. Whatever is like the best big brother. I think of my brother. Not only has he overcome so much tragedy and health issues in his life, he has gone out of his way to sacrifice for me, to sacrifice for my family and all of the people around him. I mean, when I was out of relationship with my dad for 10 years as a middle school student and a high school student, when I was out of relationship with my dad, it was my brother coming to my football games. When I couldn't buy gloves or pads or or the right bag, it was my brother buying those things for me. It was my brother who bought me all the equipment and gave me rides to my friends' houses and took me to youth group and took me to church. And when I'm in need, I know, I know, there's not a doubt in my mind that I can run to him. He's dependable. And when I introduced him to people that I know, it isn't long before they see that in him too. The impact my brother has on my life and those around him is absolutely the Jesus Christ in him. He's the whatever is pure, whatever is noble. Man, whatever you want to think is good, man, he embodies that for me. So when Paul says whatever is lovely or lovable, it's more than just be pleasant because you should be pleasant. It's be so lovable that others around you can't find themselves denying the Jesus in you. When you encounter him, there's no way you could deny it because it's so different. It's so lovable. It's inescapable. That's whatever is lovely. Whatever is admirable. This word is only used once in the Bible, and it's in this verse, but the direct translation is whatever is of good repute. I don't know how to say that word, so I guess. So just going to go with it. Uh, it means well spoken of, the things that bring a good name, having a good reputation. Paul is saying, be that, be so good, so lovable, so pure, so all these things, whatever they encompass, be that, so that you can have a good reputation. And here's how it's used in First Timothy. Again, talking about the qualifications of the church, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. I know that's a lot. The six virtues, there's a whole lot in there. But are we getting what he's getting at? Are we seeing and understand what Paul is really trying to say? He uses those six virtues to paint this picture But his next two phrases are so much broader that to me it seals the deal that this passage is much more than filling your minds with the good things. 
Think about it. He says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. If those six virtues already didn't have a description, how could you describe excellent or praiseworthy? Talk about wide and vast of a description. Those two are even broader. Surely there isn't a simple one. What he's saying is any type of virtuous course of thought, whatever it may be, whatever virtue there is or might be, whatever moral goodness, whatever is praised by God or by man, think about such things. He says these two things as a way of saying you can think about it this way or you can think about it that way, however it works for you. Kyle, if you want to think about it as excellence, think about it as excellence. Scott, if you want to think about it as praiseworthy, think about it as praiseworthy, whatever it is. Think on such things. So we're at the think about such things portion. And the word, I'm pretty sure Scott has talked about it a whole bunch of times. We're going to talk about it a little bit. This word think is crucial to the command that Paul is giving because day to day when I use the word think, it's an internal thing. It's something that you are not exposed to in me, that when we're having a conversation, I could be speaking to you, could be different than kind of what I'm thinking about what you have to say or what I have to say. It's an internalized thing. It's why we've used this passage to say, fill your minds with whatever is true and so on so much. But the word Paul uses is logizomai. It means to reckon, to count, to reason about, to examine, to deliberate. And when I was looking at this word in the textbook I was reading, this is the example that was given. If I logizomai that I have $25, then there's $25. It is. To think about such things is more than contemplation. It's serious, calculated consideration that leads to doing. It always leads to doing, putting into practice. Paul right here is giving us instruction on the life of of the Christian mind because he knows that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that what takes root in your heart starts where? In your mind. And Paul's funny because in case his readers weren't getting it, in case his readers were missing it, he adds verse 9 so that he can't be misheard or misread rather. He says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, whatever, put it into practice. There's no escaping that. He didn't have to list every single action. He didn't have to list every single thought or process or anything that is good from Jesus's life or his life. He didn't have to list that. He just says, whatever, whatever is this, whatever is this, anything you have seen or heard or saw me do or others have done, do it. And there's a few things I want us to pay attention to it. And it's that whatever. I'm so used to saying whatever to my family that I forget what it's really talking about here. Whatever is is exactly what I've been saying this whole message, and I want to keep pounding that because it's so important. He's saying whatever it may be. I'll give you six virtues, but it's so much more than that. Then Paul says, learned or received. And I like this, learned or received, because he's acknowledging that it just doesn't come out of nowhere. And I really like this. As much as I don't like tradition uh, in a religious sense, what I do like is that things are handed down from generation to generation. There's something rich about that. And mainly for me, it's food, right? Like I get my mom's recipes, I get my grandma's recipes, it's handed down to me, and then I keep it that way, and then I pass it on to other people in my generation, and then someday when I have children, I'll have that passed down to them too. Paul recognizes that passing down, that handing down of things, and there's two ways. He acknowledges that he gets it from Jesus and that you can get it from other followers. And that's true for us. We get things handed down to us from Scripture, what we know about Jesus, his life, history, and what others who are mature in their faith, more mature in their faith than ourselves, can pass down to us by example, in word, and in truth. 
And I have to say, if you're not reading your Bible and you're praying, you really need to check yourself. And that's not me just coming at you. That's just me saying, if we're believers, you are missing out on so much of who God is and who he wants you to be if you're not in the word, period. There's no escaping that. There's no more time for you to say, I don't have enough time this morning. I forgot. Who forgets? There is time in the day. Spend it with God. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is really clear about this. He says, the gospel that you received and that I preached to you, I also received. So we can really trust what Paul's saying. It's all coming from Jesus. We saw him live it. We read about him living it. And Paul is doing the same thing. He's in chains and he's in prison and he's living this life. We can trust that he doesn't have any selfish gain to pass down that kind of wisdom and knowledge to us. When I was studying this passage and prepping for this morning, there's another word that resonated with me. And it's And it's a word that kind of struck a chord with me because I feel like guilt about some of this stuff. And it's something I see about the church that we're struggling in. Paul realized that there's some sort of handing down from generation to generation, right? When Jesus left the disciples and the church began to form, it was just people who had walked and talked with Jesus and saw him live. And they just continued to spread that knowledge over and over. And that model is supposed to be our model. It's not just about the words we're preaching. It's not just about reciting scripture and alienating people with judgment. It's not about standing firm in what virtues God has called us to live. It is about loving people. It is about living the way he's called you to live because when they see that, they recognize something different. It is your Christian witness and it's paramount to your political views. It's paramount to your job. It's paramount to your structures that you've created in your home. The word is paramount. Your Christian living is paramount to all of that because all it takes is one wrong way of doing things for somebody to be turned off from the gospel. All it takes. It only takes one post, one attitude, one smirk, one laugh, one joke. That's all it takes. And so when Paul says, whatever is noble, whatever is true, whatever is pure, you need to be so filled with who Jesus Christ is that there's not an ounce of you there. Whatever it is, think on such things so that you do them. The problem is that we have this church structure, right? And we have people that have been in church and following Jesus Christ their whole life. We've got people that have not followed Jesus at all. We've got people that are coming to find out who Jesus is. It's a group of people that is super diversified. And if we're not doing our roles, if we're not living, if we're not witnessing in the way Paul has called us to, people start looking and finding it out in their own way. I talked about this about anxiety. If I don't know how I'm supposed to pray, I just look to others. And if others aren't doing it right, then what's handed down from generation to generation is the wrong way of doing things. And over time, as we go through that, we lose our way a little bit. And then when we experience what's true, we may reject it. A lot of that is Christian living. How are people going to grow if they can't see and learn? How are people going to experience the extravagant love of Jesus Christ if they don't see it in you and learn it from you and feel it from you? I mean, Paul preached this whole message about selflessness and putting others first and then says, if anything is, and then he goes on the whole list and he says, think and do. There's a vibe of a holistic approach to our Christian witness in every aspect of our life. There's a new way of thinking, new attitude, new message, and new goal. Because the Christian witness is way more important than you're used to thinking. You need to ask yourself, is what I'm doing being effective for the kingdom of God? You need to ask yourself, is who I am reminiscent of Jesus Christ? Am I that whatever is pure, true, noble? Am I that? And if it's not, I just have to read the Bible verse to you. 
If you're not, if you're not effective for the kingdom of God, it says right here, then brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned and received and seen or heard from me or Pastor Scott or any other mature believer, whatever you're seeing, seen in your Bible, put it to practice. Really simple. Maybe difficult, but it's simple. So I have a question for you. This is how, when I was reading my Bible and feeling super bad about it all with Jesus and praying, I asked myself this question, or this question came to me or whatever, and it was, if I couldn't use any words to spread God's truth, how would others see it in me? If I couldn't use my mouth at all, and I could only be actions, would others recognize it in me, and how would I do it? And so I'm going to ask you that question for yourself. Take it home and chew on that, because I feel like a lot of us might not know how, might not be bold enough to do it anyways. So here's how I'm going to close. The last part of this verse is why I really love Paul, and he does this in all of his passages. In the midst of doing his best to get his people on the right path, in the midst of getting his people to do the right things and challenging them and and calling them out about their Christian walk or their Christian witness, he always ends with how relational Jesus Christ is. So he says, whatever you have learned and received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, period, and the God of peace will be with you. The verses prior to this say the peace of God. Right? Something that God has or can give to us, gift from him. It says the peace of God will be with you when you come to him with your prayers. But because Paul wants to make it more personal, but because Paul wants to prove to you that Jesus Christ is more relational than you think, that he's more than a set of rules and laws to abide in, he says, and this God, the God of peace, will be with you. So if you're here this morning and you don't already know this, I really do need you to know that God is so desperately coming after you. He wants to live life with you. He wants to love you and to be loved by you. He wants to be in relationship with you. When you're hurt, he wants to care for you. When you pray, he wants to listen. No matter what you're told by other Christians or what you've seen in other believers, that's not our God. He's desperately in love with you and wanting to have a relationship with you. What I love is this, and this is kind of Jesus' message about that in Matthew 28, when he's going to tell them he's leaving for good, right? He's going to leave them and they're going to have to carry it on He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I commanded. Jesus finishes that, right? It's the Great Commission. says, and surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. That's the Jesus we serve. So we need to be actively after him, thinking so much about who he is and what he's done that it causes us to do actions. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. I thank you that your word is complicated sometimes because it's so encompassing of so many different virtues, so many different things, that it takes hundreds and thousands of of pages to just describe your story. I thank you for that, God, because it means there's richness in you. Thank you that there's, there's ways that I can show who you are to other people. Lord, convict our hearts to really Think about people who do not have your love. Prick our hearts to have mercy and show show grace to people who are extremely lost. That instead of being angry that they're not abiding by your your love or your law, that we're struck with compassion, that we don't create judges in ourselves, but we let you be the judge of those things. Help us to realize that our Christian witness has a huge impact. How we live is huge because eyes are on us. Lord, when we fail, we thank you for your mercy. When we fail, Lord, and we bring our requests to you and we repent from our sins, we we thank you that you're you're showing us mercy. Lord, grant us the faith to do the same to others and and the patience and the strength to do that for others, God. 
Help us to be so lovable, so pure, so true, so kind that others can't reject seeing that in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.